Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Hey, everybody. Uh, You know, every week I start off by saying we got a great one, you know, for a change. And and I think you figured out by now that uh, when I'm saying that, I'm almost always lying. Not this week, because my guests are Carol Lennig of The Washington Post, who, with her writing partner, Phil Rucker, have uh, written two number one New York Times bestsellers on the Trump presidency, a very stable genius, and I alone can fix it. And she's been covering the investigation into the January 6th storming of the Capitol by the House Select Committee. Joining Carol and myself is Ryan Riley, who has uh, much the same beat for NBC News. And we will be talking about the televised hearings that are starting this uh, coming Thursday in prime time and what we can expect. Now, Congressman Jamie Raskin, who did this podcast a couple months ago, has since said, that the hearings will, quote, blow the roof off the Capitol. So what potential bombshells uh, will Americans be hearing about Trump's role in the attempted coup? There will be testimony to the fact that on January 6th, when Trump was watching TV in the White House, that he kind of liked the idea of the mob hanging Mike Pence. Uh, There will be testimony from a number of administration officials, including Attorney General Bill Barr, that they told Trump he had lost the election and that he knew he lost the election. Meanwhile, I just just a word on how much I hate the NRA, the gun lobby, uh, my former Republican colleagues who refuse to acknowledge that there is no reason for Americans to be carrying around assault weapons. And to be such transparent assholes about it, here's Ted Cruz right after the mass murder of fourth graders in Uvalde uh, talking to a British reporter. There are 19 sets of parents who who are never going to get to kiss their child goodnight again. Okay, I wish you could see his face as he's trying to act like he's really moved and saying something profound. There's 19 sets of parents who will never get to kiss their child goodnight again. I'm sorry, but it just sounds just so smarmy. Let's go on. Is this the moment to reform gun laws? You know, it's it's easy to go to politics. Okay, I think uh, this was about the assault weapons that had just killed 19 children whose parents will never get to kiss their kids goodnight because you and your Republican colleagues still think it's okay for anybody to get an assault weapon and kill 21 people. It is a political issue. And by the way, Ted Cruz 
has received over $400,000 in campaign contributions from gun lobbyists. But it's important. It's at the heart of the issue. I, I get that that's where the media likes to go. Okay, once again, this is Ted saying, oh, this is what, it's just politics and the media's ratings and clickbait. It has nothing to do with the fact that we have all these mass shootings in this country. In this country. Now, when Australia banned assault weapons after a terrible mass shooting, since then, they have not had one. It's not. It's where many of the people we've talked to here like to go. The proposals from Democrats in the media, inevitably, when some violent psychopath murders people. A violent psychopath who's able to get a weapon so easily. 18-year-old with two AR-15s. If you want to stop violent crime, the proposals the Democrats have, none of them would have stopped this. Uh, yeah, they would have. After Sandy Hook, I, I signed on to co-sponsor the assault weapons ban along with almost every Democrat. And by the way, I have a gun buyback program that I, I think would get rid of a lot of assault weapons, take them off the street. Uh, hand in an AR-15, you get a 1,000 Oxycontin. Okay, let's pick this up. But why does this only happen in your country? I really think that's what many people around the world just... They cannot fathom. Why only in America? Why is this American exceptionalism so awful? You know, I'm sorry you think American exceptionalism is awful. Uh, uh, that's my favorite. How lame, how shameless is, is that pivot? Oh, I'm sorry you think American exceptionalism is awful. Uh, okay, it goes on. I think this aspect, I think this aspect of it. You get your political agenda. No, it's God, honestly, God love you. Senator, it's not. I just want to understand why you do not think that guns are the problem. Okay, and then Cruz just walks off. Of course, two days later, Cruz speaks at the NRA convention. Now, by then, we knew that 19 Valdi policemen refused to execute their training and waited to confront the shooter for over an hour, costing a number of children their lives. And then Ted Cruz at the NRA convention said this. Ultimately, as we all know, what stops armed bad guys is armed good guys. That is what happens when you lock a speech a week before the event and forget to, to rewrite. Okay, I got that off my... My chest. Stay tuned. We got Carol Lenig and Ryan Riley, and we discuss the upcoming January 6th hearings. It's a great one. You know, finally. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup 
<laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Carol Lennig is joining us. She's an investigative reporter for the Washington Post, Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, MSNBC contributor, author uh, with Phil Rucker of some New York Times bestsellers, uh, two New York Times bestsellers. That must, that's quite an accomplishment. Thank you. It was, um, it was a little hair-raising for a while there, but it was, uh, they were fun books to do. Now, let me ask you something. I just said they're New York Times bestsellers. Is it irritating to you that I didn't say they're number one New York Times bestsellers, which they were because the <laughs> distinction is so huge? Uh, no. Um, oh, come it, wasn't, on. it wasn't irritating. I'll tell you honestly, Al. <laughs> the, thing, the thing that was irritating is I actually have three um, New York Times bestsellers. That's, so instead of two, there were three. Okay. I, I should have known that. <laughs> Were two of them, uh, was the third one a number one New York Times bestseller? It was a number two. Okay, well, that, you know, so what? Uh, <laughs> Ryan, Ryan Riley is with me, justice uh, reporter for NBC News. How many number one New York Times? <laughs> okay, this is how we roll here on the Al Franken podcast. Um, we're, today we're going to be discussing the uh, the select committee uh january 6th select committees public hearings that are going to be coming up uh they're starting uh thursday june 9th so we'll be dropping this on sunday june 5th and this coming thursday will be in prime time right that's the understanding yeah they're gonna have two sort of prime time hearings and then in the middle they're gonna have the the daytime hearing so i think they're starting off with the prime time hearing now, what does that mean in terms of prime time? Is it prime time on C-SPAN or is it prime time on all the networks? <laughs> I mean, that's a big difference because you hear prime time, you go, wow. And then you go, oh, it's, it's on. What, what, what does it mean? You know, what's, I think what's interesting about this just, you know, in general is that so much of this is focused on the media coverage and the reaction. Like a lot of the strategy that they've been talking is about how we can make sure that this breaks through, how it gets the, you know, the audience that it deserves. Right. And it's just sort of fascinating because it's almost like members of this committee are like sort of, you know, a being and doing audience testing. It's like kind of like they're like reporters in a certain way, like, oh, how can we make sure that this has the most impact? And you wonder if like how well, they're politicians. 
Yeah. 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 But you wonder like how recent of a development that is in terms of, I don't think that the Watergate folks are necessarily worried about whether or not their material was going to break through, right? Like it was just like, here's what we got. Let's lay it out. Everyone will cover it. And that's sort of that, right? There is a lot less division, I think, in, in those days when you could just sort of put something out and everyone covered it. We'd have this shared understanding together as a country of what happened. How but- long were those hearings? Because they went on those televised hearings went on for quite a while. I mean, they're assuming we're going to do, how many did you say, six of these? Yep. Two in prime time. And again, I want to, I didn't, uh, do you know the answer to that? Are they going to be on NBC, CBS, ABC, CNN? I mean, or are they just going to be on CNN and uh, Fox and uh, Fox, I want to carry them, MSNBC? Where, where are they going to be in prime time? What does that mean, prime time? I think their goal is to get them, you know, it's obviously up to the networks which ones cover them, but I think their goal is to get as much coverage of this as possible. And I would suspect that we're going to have pretty intense coverage, uh, at least on, you know, the cable news networks uh, for certainly those that first and, and last hearing. But yeah, I mean, like that's, I mean, they basically just want to get as large of an audience as they can. And I think that this is going to be a multi. So they're not going to like NBC is sure. not going to preempt mass singer. <laughs> I haven't been privy to those discussions might be a little bit ab- above my pay grade at NBC <laughs> universal, but I don't know if it's gonna. I'm not sure exactly when, what they're going to break through for some of this. Now, Carol, what night is mass singer? Cause I don't know. <laughs> oh, I don't know either, but I think what's yeah. most important I that Ryan, I had knowledgeable. Yeah. Really, we're, we're really failing you on this central question, but um, <laughs> I think what the most important thing is to focus on that phrase Ryan used, which is breakthrough. I mean, you make the comparison that's smart Al about the Watergate hearings, which went on for weeks and nobody was thinking, you know, how do we spin or emphasize key points in our presentation. Whereas I think in this instance, because our country is now so divided, now there's an echo chamber, a Fox News echo chamber and a MSNBC echo chamber. There's a real anxiety on the part of the committee to make sure that this pierces the blood brain barrier for people who don't want to hear that Donald Trump did something unpleasant, untoward, or possibly seditious. You know, there's a huge part of America that um, doesn't believe that the people who attacked the Capitol on January 6th were criminals, um, when indeed all the evidence on videotape is that they were. There was a series of felonies being committed and attacks on police. And I think what this committee's challenge is and what they're trying to make other people understand who are resisting it is this was violent. This was organized. And this was essentially a fire that Donald Trump lit the match for. And and that's going to be, I think, one of the big distinctions is what that means that he lit the match for. Now, Jamie Raskin, who was the the House manager for the the impeachment in the Senate, has said that these hearings are going to blow the roof off the Capitol. That's kind of promising a lot. Now, to be clear to my audience, he didn't say that the people who stormed the Capitol had planned to blow the roof off the Capitol. Right. He said that the, the reaction to this well, so that's kind of promising a lot. So what are you looking for, for example, in this first hour, or I don't know how long these hearings are going to be, but what are you looking for? What should they do right at the start of this? Should they 
drop a few bombshells right at the beginning. I mean, when he's saying this is going to blow the roof off the Capitol, that seems to me to be saying they're going to connect Donald Trump to what happened. More than just that he inspired them to do this, but that he was in on the planning of it. So I'm, I'm keen to hear what Ryan's interpretation of this is, but you know I'm not a crisis communicator manager. I am not a spin doctor, but I am a reporter. And what I hear from inside sources is are a couple of things about what this committee aims to do in the early stages of their hearings and presentation. They will have lined up real narrators who lived through these days before January 6th, during January 6th, and immediately after the attack, narrating in their own first person front seat view lens what happened, what they heard inside the White House, what they heard inside the Capitol, and what they heard from principals that they worked for or worked alongside or served. And so I think you can imagine that you'll hear, for example, from people who were giving advice to Vice President Pence as Donald Trump was trying to bully him into refusing to certify the election on January 4th, a lobby campaign that went on for many days. You're going to hear from police who were attacked on January 6th, and you're going to hear from people who were near President Trump as he was planning essentially what he wanted to happen that day. Obviously, we all know what he wanted Vice President Pence to do. But then he was going for a Hail Mary of having his supporters do something, exert some pressure on the Capitol. And I think you're going to hear, again, first person witnesses describing what Trump said he wanted. Most recently, we've heard in a very good New York Times report that President Trump indicated on the day of the attack some support or some happiness at the idea that his supporters on January 6th were calling for the hanging of the vice president. Now, these are people presumably who are in the White House during those three hours he did nothing and that he didn't call us off. And what I understand is that it's these are witnesses who said that he was kind of giddy or happy that uh, they were talking about hanging Mike Pence. Now, I'd feel a little bad about that if I were Mike Pence. Am I wrong? Or is Mike Pence just that forgiving a guy? I mean, whose idea was it to hang Mike Pence? Whose idea was that? You know, I think like one thing that's going to be really interesting to explore is the connections between a lot of these extremist groups and the White House, frankly, because I think that that's really where a lot of the key is, right? Because there is just a lot of a lot of overlap between people who are in the orbit of in Trump's orbit and people who are in the orbit of the Oath Keepers uh, and the Proud Boys, which are sort of the two organizations that are at the center. You know, the Oath Keepers, three of them, right, have have pled guilty. That's right. To seditious conspiracy. And that's not really a surprise since the Oath Keeper's Oath is I solemnly pledge to overthrow the United States government. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, I think that like I, one moment that really sticks out to me during this was a few weeks back when uh, I was covering this the third plea agreement hearing. And it was sort of a last minute hearing. This is someone who had been cooperating. This is an Oath Keeper who had been cooperating with the government for a while, comes in and actually does his plea agreement and was going to be testifying before uh, the grand jury the next day. 
as described in this account and what he told the court, it was this pretty dramatic moment where on January 6th, after leaving the grounds of the Capitol with Stuart Rhodes, who was the head of the Oath Keepers, they went back right. to this, this suite at a hotel, um, and he heard Stuart Rhodes make a call to someone, it's not identified who, who was in Trump's orbit, apparently some sort of go-between to try to get in direct contact with Donald Trump that day. Stuart Rhodes wanted to speak with Donald Trump. He wasn't successful in, in getting through. Um, and what Oath Keepers or the lawyers or the Oath Keepers have said is that he didn't have any direct connections, but he knew a lot of people who knew people. And I think that those connections are going to be really something that both the January 6th committee, uh, as well as federal prosecutors and this and this federal grand jury are, are going to be exploring very closely. And are we talking about a Roger Stone? Are we talking about a Mark Meadows? What, who are we? Well, Mark, uh, so Roger Stone uh, was offered protection by the Oath Keepers. The Oath Keepers were actually escorting Roger Stone around uh, the Capitol the, the day before January 6th, as well as on, on the day of. So I think that, you know, that's certainly one of the, those links that people are going to be looking at very clearly. Um, Roger Stone has denied that he was the person who was on the other end of that call. So you can take that for what you will coming from uh, Roger Stone. But that's, I mean, I think that like those networks are going to be really something that is going to be interesting because there is some overlap between some of the lawyers for Trump efforts that have been that have been going on in this sort of more of this this lawyerly effort to overturn the results of the 2020 election and the violent uh, attempt to overthrow uh, the election results on January 6th. There's definitely some overlap in some of the same players who are dealing in both instances. So, you know, I think that it's really interesting when you hear a federal grand jury start exploring around organizers on January 6th because of that just brings up so many red flags within uh, the Justice Department and so many protocols in terms of respecting First Amendment rights, because you can't just sort of investigate something when there are First Amendment protections to holding a rally, for example. So I think that like the number of checks that they had to go through before pursuing this leg of the investigation is, is really interesting. But of course, the committee can explore a lot more of that uh, without having to worry about so much about uh, the actual what the potential criminal uh, offense might be. They just sort of have That'd more be for of a- the Justice Department. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. The restrictions on the Justice Department. And uh, the, the Justice Department, what, asked for transcripts of, of, of some of the interviews and the committee wouldn't give it? To DOJ or not initially, there's there is a little bit of tension rising up, uh, and I think that that might be something that's going to be cleared up down the line, especially after these hearings and after sort of if there's any report that they put out. But you know, th- those raw materials could be of a lot of value, frankly, to the Justice Department. So that's something that the committee would you would think would want to have in the Justice Department's hands because there are a lot of crimes you could prosecute someone for for you know lying to Congress, for example. That's one way of going about this um, from criminal prosecution standpoint. So why wouldn't the committee hand that over right away? Why why would they even question that? Well, there has been some members of the committee who have been upset with DOJ not going further. But I would you know say that this is the largest investigation in FBI history in terms of def- number of defendants um, and the gigabytes and terabytes of, of data that is involved. We now have over 800 people who have been charged in connection with the January 6 attacks more than 300 guilty pleas, as you said, charges as high as seditious conspiracy. So there is a lot of effort going on here. But frankly, you know, this is a lot for DOJ to deal with, because that's just such a high volume of cases. And we have seen some instances of cracks sort of showing 
uh, in the armor here in terms of these prosecutions as, as they go on with DOJ just essentially being overwhelmed. And they've asked uh, Congress, in fact, for more money to go forward to complete these investigations because there's just there's just so much work ahead. Um, Citizen Sleuths have identified more than 2,500 people who entered the Capitol building that day. There are still hundreds of people on the FBI's website who assaulted officers outside the Capitol who have yet to be arrested. So this is a long, long road ahead. And DOJ is going to need some more resources, I think, to go through with all of this. But, you know, one of the most interesting things about that is Democrats, especially, but also basically critics of Donald Trump, are now huge critics of the Department of Justice, because you even have federal judges asking what in the world is going on when you're putting all these resources into prosecuting or at least charging basically trespassers and and giving them plea agreements to go away because it's such a huge volume of cases, as Ryan points out. Why are we focusing as a Department of Justice and as a government so much energy on hundreds of low-level, no-connection kind of miscreants who got caught up in this mob and got rabid as they increasingly rabid as they march down Constitution Avenue towards the Capitol at the president's exhortation. Why are, is all of the energy being poured into that instead of simultaneously having an investigation into the nonviolent conspiracy that was sort of in front of everyone's faces? And that was President Trump, a group of his allies and supporters lying to the public, perpetrating a fraud upon them that the election had been rigged, although the president had been told multiple times that there was yes. no Who, Who's going to testify saying, I told the president he lost and he understood that he lost? How many people thus far have said that? Well, the former attorney general has said that, um, Bill Barr. I don't know that he'll be a witness, but he and many of his aides were present in Oval Office meetings, as were the president's uh, counsel, the White House counsel, not the president, but the counsel for the White House. They were present for meetings where the president was told repeatedly, there is no such evidence, sir. We do not have anything to give you to suggest that the results would have been changed. And while perpetrating this fraud on the American people, uh, what I'd call Team Trump, was engaged in something where there's evidence of a crime, evidence of an effort to mislead the public and use the president's levers of power to stay in power, something that's never happened in our lifetimes. What, what kind of smoking gun is going to be needed for there's going to be there's a certain percentage of Trump MAGA people who will never, no matter what you give them, uh, the, for example, the Raffensperger tape will, will ever, you know, buy that Biden won the election, et cetera. But what what needs to happen in these hearings where people go like, oh, OK, one justice should prosecute the president and two you know he was lying about losing the election of course and let's just never have to see this guy again um my quick answer and, and i want to emphasize something al and that is you know we are reporters we're not rallying for a side or another i'm not pushing for a department of justice investigation but i see the evidence that would have led the opening of an investigation on a person who was just a normal person and not a, a former president. But in terms of your question, what's going to break through? 
Every week during the Trump presidency, as reporters, we imagined that people would be aghast at certain actions that he took, evidence of him misleading the public, lying to the press, lying to the public. Every week, there would be a new event that we thought would uh, lead Trump supporters to be concerned about a president taking those actions or engaging in that kind of malfeasance. And um, that never materialized. You know, the president basically asked a head of state to investigate an American citizen, which uh, is in some circumstances, depending on the the steps that are taken is against the law. And that that did not lead to his impeachment. And that did not lead to any diminution of his supporters support for him. So I feel like the challenge for the committee of breaking through will be tricky, very tricky, a very high bar for them to hurdle. And I would say that having some of the president's basically closest allies narrate their concern um, and their their feeling of being gobsmacked and disturbed uh, might be the most compelling uh, part of the case if it's presented. So if Raskin is saying this is going to blow the roof off the Capitol, he also said this is not a coup directed at the president. It was a coup directed by the president against the vice president and against the Congress. If it's shown. For example, what happens if it's shown that hang Mike Pence was Donald Trump's idea or he approved that idea or what is there? I know what you're saying. We, we just, I, I thought he was a goner when he said, I don't like people who were captured, you know, and then, and then uh, there were a million of them where I went, no, that's gotta be it. And I was wrong. Is there anything here that can, what could possibly make enough Americans go like, oh, my God. It's tough to say, but I do think that like one thing that I found really compelling in the criminal cases that have come forward so far is just having these individuals who admitted they committed criminal uh, offenses on January 6th, these January 6th rioters say why they did what they did and just spell it out in plain language. And I sometimes feel like I'm a broken record on this, but to these people who actually believe that the election was stolen, their reaction makes sense, right? Like if this was truly the crime of the century, that's something that would be a proportional response, right? Like invading the Capitol or at least, you know, committing some act of civil disobedience at least would be a reaction to this idea that there's the crime of the century that happened that, you know, someone is going to seize power unlawfully in the United States. And you could go up from there. You can justify a lot if you actually believe that this was a coup against Trump, which is what a lot of these these folks believed. Uh, they actually believe that, you know, millions of people voted, more people voted for Trump, that this was, you know, across state lines and involving different parties, a massive, massive crime. That's truly what a lot of these folks believed. And you hear that in case after case, whether it be in their text messages or just even during their plea agreement hearings. Um, one of the most compelling tapes to me, um, there's this individual, DJ Rodriguez, uh, Danny Rodriguez out of California. Um, and he was he went with a bunch of other people from California to uh, DC on January 6th. Um, they brought a bunch of weapons. He had a stun gun uh, and actually drove that stun gun into the neck of uh, former DC police officer, Mike Fanon. And when the FBI arrested him, they 
they interviewed him and they, they sat him down and this tape has now come out through the legal process. Uh, and they, you know, he basically explained to them that he thought that they were the good guys, that they were going to come out on top, that they were saving the country and explained the commander in chief had called them to DC. So that's what he thought he had to do. And I think that that logic just sort of follows for a lot of these folks who actually believe these lies about the stolen election, which is what sort of made those lies so dangerous. Well, those people had to do a gut check. Why did I do this thing? Why did I shoot a stun gun into the neck of an officer? Which is a legitimate political discourse, according to Republican National <laughs> Committee, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it is just really disturbing when you see some of these, these videos. And it is like, you know, to borrow a phrase, there's these alternative facts that have come up on the other side of this, where a lot of people are portraying this idea that the police use too much force against, you know, which I mean, just doesn't really match up, right? Because the mob invaded the Capitol. So the idea that too much force was used is kind of just, you know, ridiculous on its face if <laughs> you consider the fact that they were overrun. But that's what a lot of these people are now saying. Well, saying you know what? That- it, was, it was a good thing I wasn't still there because I kept two magnums in my desk on the Senate floor with high capacity clips. And I would have just come out shooting at ah. the, <laughs> and uh, there would have been just a lot of dead Trumpies and the thing would have been over in a few minutes. <laughs> That's a joke. I wouldn't have done that. Okay. <laughs> there was that report about Lindsey Graham being very upset about the fact that there wasn't more force used. There, they wanted them to use uh, more force. And you know, I think that it's just something that, frankly, the Capitol Police aren't used to, right? Like you often see a lot of these organized events where being arrested is sort of part of, part of this, right. the, the deal, right? right? We're going to go in there, the we're going to get arrested as Correct. a protest gonna, because we believe in uh, Martin Luther King and right. Gandhi. That not these people because they were they were using bear spray and look these cops ended up with traumatic brain injury, broken vertebrae, uh, eyes gouged out, fingers lost. They you know some committed suicide. This this was unbelievably violent, and I think we're going to hear more about that. We heard some of the police testify before that was chilling. I mean, the three of us are sitting here going, and I'm asking the question, what could possibly <laughs> uh, change? Uh, you know, is Jamie Raskin promising too much? Al, I think you keep coming back to that question correctly, because uh, Raskin, when he made, uh, Jamie Raskin, when he made that remark, part of it was right after he released what he thought was some really new information being corroborated. It was really material that was corroborated from the post reports and from a piece of our book, which was, he said, the most chilling words that he had learned in the course of the investigation was when Mike Pence told his Secret Service detail leader, I'm not getting in that car because he right. he believed the Secret Service was going to whisk him away. And those are chilling words. And, and we did report them a, a good while ago. And the committee has corroborated those with first person accounts and interviews. What's striking about that moment is that Pence is suspicious that the Secret Service is going to take him away from so the So that he can't certify the election. So that he can't certify the election. Now, what we don't know is whether or not, and, and I'm not trying to make an allegation here, but what we don't know is what the Secret Service uh, was thinking and what coordination they were engaged with with the White House. 
there's something we report in our book in which a top aide to President Trump, who previously was the head of his Secret Service detail and was also ultimately the boss of the Secret Service at that moment, was having a conversation with a vice presidential aide. And the vice presidential aide on January 6th was telling this Secret Service leader, I know you guys, you're going to whisk him away to Alaska if you can. We don't know. The Secret Service may have wanted to whisk Pence away for his own safety. There are good reasons to get him out of the Capitol while people are chanting, hang Mike Pence and have, you know, hangman's noose and Pence in effigy outside the building. But Pence and his team, at least, were worried and suspicious about a effort to get, get Pence basically off the property and off the job. But Raskin's comments come when he is also talking about other lawmakers and their role in January 6th. So I think what you're going to see about blow the roof off has to do with Pence a little bit, and also is going to have to do with Republican lawmakers and their meetings with Trump in late December before January 6th, where they sort of crow and boast in different social media posts that they have a plan for January 6th and to make sure that President Trump's election is not really stolen from him. We'll be right back after this break with Carol Lennig and Ryan Riley. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage in a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. Okay, so uh, we, we start on Thursday. We don't know how long these primetime broadcasts will be, I guess, Probably a couple hours, maybe. You just we don't know, right? Yeah, we don't. We don't have a firm understanding of that yet. I mean, I think they are keeping things relatively tight uh, to a certain extent about how the length of these. But I do think that you know this does seem like it's going to be a multimedia presentation to sort of knock people over over the head. Is I think what they're hoping, um, just to really coalesce as much attention around this as possible. Because I think that they're sort of worried about what happened with the Mueller report um, and how that sort of landed, of course, with the help of, of William Barr's letter that sort of laid out not so much a summary, but a, a version yeah, was, of what uh, the report actually That was said. a disgrace. That was a disgrace. Yeah. So I think that that's what they're trying to avoid here is to have this sort of be something that hits people over the head and, and really gets the point home about the president's uh, role on January 6th and 
you know, the violence that we saw that day, as well as, as Carol's talked about, what the, these legal efforts that led up to January 6th. Okay, well, we're, we're still, um, <laughs> I'm hoping for a smoking gun. You guys have been covering this very closely. What would count as a smoking gun? I think there are two things that could count. One would be the president's own words, whether repeated by somebody who stood right next to him or in some other fashion. The president's own words playing some role in encouraging the attack on the Capitol. And, you know, we know what he did say because it was on a loudspeaker at the ellipse. Um, but anything that goes beyond that, those words, which were, you know, go well, he's got away with that. And fight like hell for your country or you're not going to have a country left, you know. But if there was the words of the president himself, the former president saying his goal, his wish of what would happen. You may remember, Al, um, that Mo Brooks was described a lot by Ali Alexander. Remember, one of the protest organizers, Ali Alexander, had said he had a plot that he was cooking up with some Republican lawmakers in the Freedom Caucus to exert what, what he called maximum pressure on Republicans who at that point were not resisting the blockade of the certification on January 6th. And Ali Alexander talked about exerting this maximum pressure with people on the streets outside the Capitol, applying this pressure on the inside. And that sure sounds like what we saw, right? Um, the day of, although there was a lot more violence the day of than that description. So if the president had been aware of Ali Alexander's plan, and saying, you go get them, guys, um, you go do that, I think that would be a pretty big smoking gun. I'm not saying it exists. I'm saying that if it does, that would be a pretty big deal. Politically, it could be a big deal. But, uh, you know, the the other hand, side of that is legally, would it be? Because I think that some of these are really tough questions. Uh, and I know that sometimes upsets people when you talk about the the legal restrictions here. But there's a First Amendment protected right to assemble. Uh, there's a First Amendment even in support of complete lies about a stolen election. So, you know, if there was organization in terms of maximizing pressure, right, or even when they use the, you know, the phrase fight like hell, that's kind of in the realm of political political speech, right? That doesn't necessarily mean actually physically fight people. But, you know, that, th- those did. are a lot of the... Yes, they did. They did. That's how certainly it was interpreted. But and I mean, that was sort of the logical outcome of, of this to a certain extent. But criminally, I do think it's a it's a minefield, certainly for DOJ, um, in terms of January 6th itself, uh, trying to come up with a potential criminal charge uh, against Trump absent some sort of smoking gun. What about the three hours that he sat there and seemed to relish what was going on? And didn't send what he finally did make a video saying go you know and that those video the versions of that video could be very interesting because apparently it's it? filmed multiple times so because he didn't hit the right note I suppose the I first love few you times. you're great <laughs> don't go no Mr President no that's not the message oh. um, <laughs> what you're doing is great uh, hang Mike Pence no Mr President no 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 you're you're telling him to go. Really? You know, I mean, what? <laughs> it would be nice to get those. But aren't there other there are witnesses there, too? I mean, and including is Ivanka 
going to testify. She was there. Well, she testified to the committee. So and yeah. as did, yeah, uh, as did Jared. So that's certainly. <laughs> yeah. Dad uh, was really liking the idea of uh, hanging my nuts. <laughs> I, I could be, be putting myself out on a limb here, but I kind of doubt you're going to see Ivanka testify in person. Um, but I can imagine that some of her testimony behind closed doors will be, right. repla- will be replayed. Uh, and, and, you know, she is the person in those moments, along with Mark Meadows, who are pleading with her father to remake the video, to redo, do another take, you know, to take down the tweet that he issues sometime after two o'clock in which he accuses Vice President Pence of lacking the courage, essentially blaming him for the, uh, the reign of violence that's coming down on him and has forced him and his Secret Ser- Service detail to scurry down to the basement for protection. So she is a critical witness, as is Mark Meadows. But I would guess. So, yeah. So having her there will, could be counterproductive because she loves her father. Um, yeah, and you can just sort of do a, you can just do a, you can do a highlight reel, right? It's a little bit right. of a, it's a little bit of a time saving yeah, device that's... because you can just sort of highlight the most important components without necessarily having this you know lengthy testimony that drags on. They can basically edit down and, and get to the most essential parts by using some of these interviews that they've they've already done. And the people who were there who witnessed him yeah. saying, "I kind of like the idea of hanging my pants." <laughs> Um. <laughs> yeah, well, I think you'll you'll definitely hear from a person who who heard uh, Meadows say that Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, told another aide, you know, oh my goodness, I'm making up the words here, but oh my goodness, uh, the president seems to like this. Okay, like this meaning the whole thing, or liking specifically uh, the, the specifically the, the, the vice president, <laughs> specifically that his his supporters are after Pence. Boy, oh boy, Pence is very loyal to him, wasn't he, all the way through until until that day. Yeah, and that that's a hanging offense. <laughs> Things could have gone a lot differently if Mike Pence hadn't been. You know, a lot of people call him like the wax museum vice president because for four years he sat beside Donald Trump and smiled blandly and nodded and said how great this president was. I didn't think it was so bland. I thought he had an electric smile. Mm, Okay. So, but here on that day, he got, he dug in his heels. He refused to leave and went and he acted more like the commander in chief that day than, than the president did. You know, he worked with the army, conferring with the secretary of defense uh, and the chairman of the joint chiefs about how to clear the capital and return essentially to what he called to finish the job of certifying the election and to keep democracy from popping off the roller coaster rails. Okay, so are you guys going to be like having popcorn and like... (laughs) watching this thing where do you watch this thing when you're just in my little office at the washington post well you go to go to work <laughs> it'll be a late night if we're if we're doing these prime time specials you know right. where will you be al i think i'll just be at home you know on the couch going like go oh, come on come on <laughs> that'll be ah. Oh, <laughs> I'll be doing that kind of thing. I, I guess <laughs> that's it's, it'll be interesting because I think that like for you know for for people reporters who've been in this so deep, it is going to be really interesting to f- find out if there's still stuff that they were able to keep really t- 
to, close to the vest if they were able to keep those secrets up. I, I think, think this could they be really interesting. Have, I, if they were smart, they did. I, I hope there are 12 Alexander Butterfield moments. Mm. Remember Alexander yeah. Butterfield? For my listeners who aren't old enough, uh, Alexander Butterfield testified at the Watergate hearing. And they had, of course, done a pre-interview with him. And he sits down and he says, yeah, everything that he said in the Oval Office was taped. <laughs> yeah, that was, a, that was a huge moment for the committee. And he didn't want to give that up, but he didn't want to lie. And when they asked him point blank, how did you get verbatim what the president said? He finally had to answer. And then I just remember I was watching and that moment... And I just, I just jumped off. This is what I'm hoping that happens <laughs> in these hearings. That I jumped off the couch and I went, that's it. It's over. Because if it's taped, it's not good for the president. I mean, it's got to be horrible. And it's over. That was the end. Uh, so I do think they have saved some stuff for this. They better have. Otherwise, they don't. You know, what What prosecution doesn't save stuff? Well, of course, they're going to have some what they consider to be some new bombshells or else Raskin would not have said, you know, blow the roof off the house. But, you know, to the point we've all three been making, bombshells may only create more cringe and 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 disdain within a certain portion of the American public. And there will be a lot, potentially a very large percentage of Americans who say, so what, as they've said for the last four years, because they really think of Donald Trump as their champion, and they really like what he has to say. And though he did not deliver for them on policies that protected his supporters or, or lifted them up, they like him. And it's, it's really hard for them to absorb or acknowledge that he's done a lot of things that would get normal people in jail pretty quickly. That's been something that's been really tough for January 6th defendants to admit themselves. And there's somewhat of a split where you have some defendants pleading guilty, but not really acknowledging that they got tricked, right? But you do have a lot of defendants who now realize that they threw their lives away to a certain extent because they believed in the lies about the stolen election. Um, that has been really fascinating to watch some of the defendants come to recognize that, that they were tricked. And this is going to now, this is the rest of their lives. Some of them are going to be left with felony records, not be able to own guns, not be able to vote um, in some states because of, of what they did on January 6th. Yeah, but that's only a few hundred people. And we're talking about all these people that will back Donald Trump no matter what, while there are a lot of us who think this is maybe one of the worst people in the world. <laughs> and that's a divided country, isn't it? Well, Al, I mean, think about the very beginning, the bookend to what we're discussing, right? January 6th is the end of the Trump presidency in many ways. But the beginning of the Trump presidency was when he was caught on a hot mic describing the way in which he could use his celebrity to grab women by the crotch and they wouldn't be able to complain or do anything about it. 
he was elected president by a majority, uh, at least of the Electoral College, after those tapes became public. And it wasn't very soon before people had to go to the polls that they heard those tapes, sort of incontrovertible evidence about the way he thinks of women and talks in private. Yeah. But then you had Comey and you had, you know, Hillary, who I think would have made a great president calling uh, Trump supporters um, a, um, a basket of deplorables. And I think she was calling basket of deplorables were a basket of bad attitudes, not the people. But that, of course, didn't matter. That, that canceled every other thing that Trump had said. And remember that Trump did lose by three million votes uh, in the popular vote. And, he didn't and accept that, though. He, like, he formed a whole commission to I, prove I know, but that wrong. And then how many uh, votes did the commission prove were, were falsely? <laughs> uh, <laughs> none, right? They, they found nothing. Yes. It was a platform for them to continue to, you know, rein in voting, essentially. Did, did that make people skeptical when he said, oh, I, I really, I really won this one? <laughs> no, I'm just praying for these uh, Alexander Butterfield moments. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know what, what I think is interesting about what you just said, Al, and your conversation with Ryan about uh, the allegation of deplorables or people that resist he hearing factual information about Donald Trump's activities as president and behavior as president. It says something about the way in which this group of Americans feel let down and ignored and dismissed by resentment. resentment. Yeah, there's a deep, deep resentment and a deep anger and distrust in this country. And, and it predated Donald Trump. It's, you know, we often say, uh, Phil and I, my co-author, Phil Rucker, we often say, you know, Donald Trump not only tapped into the anger and fear and resentment and this group of Americans, he amped it up. He turned the dial as high as it could go. And that is his genius because it is. He figured out there was a there was a yearning in this country for something else, a feeling of anger. And we shouldn't deride this group of Americans who resist any criticism of Donald Trump, any factual information about Donald Trump's misdeeds, we should figure out what is it that they are so aggrieved about and feel that they, that they need from this country that they're not getting. Well, there, there's reason for that. People don't think the government works for them. And in, in, in many, many cases, it doesn't. I mean, if you look at, I, I, I believe a majority now of Trump voters want to raise taxes on people, uh, upper income people. Hmm. And th these are people who, you know, starting 10 years ago or so, were going like, wait a minute, my kids are not better off than I am. That's and right. And that was the American, that's, that was the deal. That's, right? that's it. Uh, and remember, he's from Queens. Donald Trump's from a real estate developing company in Queens. If you want to resent the elites, Come from Queens <laughs> and resent Manhattan and the hoity-toities in Manhattan. No, they're, they're, he tapped into something that's actually real, that's actually legitimate. 
And it is that people aren't doing as well as their parents or, or and their kids aren't doing as well as them. And people are mad about that. And that makes them susceptible to things like critical race theory and, you know, replacement, the great replacement theory and all this horrible, horrible stuff, but also legitimate stuff, which is that the economy doesn't work. Yeah. And the chasm between the haves and the have nots is, you know, worse than it was in the 1920s. The resentment of elites is very real and very legitimate. So there. <laughs> <laughs> and we're them. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.